Well, if you would, turn to Exodus chapter 14. It's good to see you this morning. I had several say, I can't make it because I'm going to be voting before work, and I understand. So it's good to see the numbers that we have this morning. So thank you, thank you. Well, we are finally at the <laughs> one of the greatest events, if not the greatest event, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> at least according to biblical theology, and I'll explain why in a minute. There are over 125 references in the Old Testament alone about this event, the crossing of the Red Sea, the Exodus. It's not uh, foreign or absent in the New Testament either. In fact, in many ways, Jesus is presented as the new Moses. Well, there are dissertations, books written on Jesus as the new Moses, and we could go into to greater detail, but we're not. Childs, in his work on biblical theology, writes, the centrality of the Exodus was retained throughout the entire Old Testament and established Israel's identity. And we're going to see that. For the New Testament, it, it, it's repackaged. And it's not Israel's identity, it's now the church's identity. And what do I mean by that? You can see in your notes, in fact, uh, Klein, in his book on the structure of biblical authority, writes, because the death of Jesus prefigured in his baptism, he's quoting from Peter, isn't he, in which the water ordeal symbolism of the Red Sea passage was renewed, we may say with biblical propriety that Jesus, like Moses, leads his people through the sea of death. This is all about salvation. Uh, the Red Sea rules, you've seen that little book? It's great, but it, it's really going a little far afield from what the Exodus is really about. It's about salvation. The salvation of the Israelites back at the time of Moses. And for the New Testament era, it's salvation again under a new Moses, and that is Jesus. So I want you to think about that as we go through this because it's so significant uh, to biblical theology, this event. All right. Well, turn to Exodus chapter 14, and let's that's, that's read, and we'll go to verse 14, and then we'll break. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites that they... Uh, don't you find that humorous? Who's supposed to tell the Israelites? <laughs> the one who, who can't speak. <laughs> right? Anyway, it's interesting. Moses, uh, before we're done, Moses is doing all the speaking himself. Aaron seems to be in the... In fact, he and Aaron have a bit of duel of words uh, later we're going to see. Tell the Israelites that they may turn and camp before... Uh, oh, there's another term here, by the way. Turn is loaded in the New Testament and, and the Old Testament. It, it's the term in the Hebrew shuv, which means to bring back to turn. And it's used here. It's used of Elijah and the prophecy of one coming like Elijah, that they're going to turn the hearts. So they turn and camp. Be, uh, before Paharath, uh, between Magdal, the sea, opposite Baal Zephon. Where are these places? We don't know. That doesn't need to alarm you. Even Nelson Gluck, who was far from conservative, far from a uh, Jewish scholar, argued there's no biblical, arche well, there's no archaeology that has disproven Scripture, and that's the case. Just the sites haven't been found yet. Uh, somewhere on the north side of the, the northern part of the Red Sea, Bitter Lakes region, somewhere in this vicinity. There's been some speculation. And you are to camp by the sea. Now, unless they have a fleet of ships, that is one precarious position to be in, right? You, you can't go through a sea. 
especially with women and children and all the belongings that they took from their neighbors, the Egyptians. Right? And by the sea is so significant. It's repeated three times in the text. It doesn't want you, it wants to highlight, the author wants to highlight how difficult the situation was. And Pharaoh will think that the Israelites are wandering around confused. Yes, look at this map. Let me show you. I, you're down by the sea, and again, the, the Red Sea probably extended up to the Bitter Lakes. Today, there's a land bridge here. Uh, again, this is debated, and I realize there's a lot of scholars that talk. But you would have expected, yeah, we know they couldn't go the way of the Philistines, the, the coastal highway, but they could have went around and down this way. He's taking them down to here. Makes no sense. And what does Pharaoh think? Ha-ha, got him. This is what I wanted. And so I will harden the heart of Pharaoh, God says, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored because of Pharaoh and because of his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So this is what they, will do, they did. It was reported to the king of Pharaoh, that, or Egypt, that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants were turned against the, the people. So he said, what in the world have we done? <laughs> we, we let our, our workforce go, Right? Our slaves, for we have released the people of Israel from serving us. Notice it's very uh, narcissistic, isn't it? Then he prepared his chariots and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and officers on all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, just like he said he would, the king of Egypt. And he chased after the Israelites, and the Israelites were going out defiantly. And the Egyptians chased after them and all the horses and chariots. You, you catch the word chariots? Seven times it occurs in this text. And we'll talk about why. That's very significant. Uh, of, uh, and the horsemen and his armies overtaking them, camping by the sea. There it is again. And we mentioned the city's names. When Pharaoh got closer, the Israelites looked up. It didn't take them long. You know, you got probably a couple million. The, the numbers are, can be debated, but you've got a large crowd of people coming out of Egypt, right? On foot, most likely. Women and children. And now you got the elite of the elite. And this is one, I was hoping Dick would be here this morning, he's probably voting, but uh, th this is one incredible army, and we'll talk about the Egyptian army during the 18th dynasty, during this time frame in a minute. Uh, it didn't take them long to catch up with what's going on, and you need to know, there are Egyptian fortresses through this region, so they're, they're, they're very aware of where the Israelites are, okay? Uh, so they know what's going on. And when Pharaoh got closer, the Israelites looked up, and you can imagine, the Egyptians were marching after them. They were terrified. You better be. The Israelites cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you took us away to die in the desert? I mean, I've taken groups to Egypt. All you look at are graves. <laughs> There's tombs everywhere. Uh, the Valley of the Kings, it's all tombs. I said, You brought us out here? Egypt's known for its tombs. That's what the pyramids are. All right? Was this not what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. That's an amazing statement. We'll get to it in a minute. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, stand firm, and see, and this is key, the salvation of the Lord that He will provide for you today. For the Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. 
wow. Just hang on to your bipper because something's going to happen and it's going to be huge. The Lord will fight for you and you can be still. That's an amazing statement. Well, let's back up. Let's unpack this text because it's so key. They're trapped by the Egyptians. We saw this and it's interesting. It's illogical. It does not make sense where they're headed. And I can guarantee you there's some Israelites that are part of this entourage that's following Moses going, are you, what are you doing? This is not the way to go. Why are we over here? There's no bridge built. Uh, you know, where's the Golden Gate? And for Pharaoh's perspective, got him. I got him right where I want him. From God's perspective, I got him right where I want him. Perfect location for me to display my glory. You, you catch this. We've been talking about this time and time again. It's a cosmic battle, isn't it? It's between Pharaoh and Yahweh. Whose people do they, who do they belong to? Right? Who's in charge? Who's ultimately God? The one who's God incarnate, a manifestation of the gods, Pharaoh, or the great I am? <laughs> and I think about some of the rhetoric I've heard in the last more than I wanted to hear the last year, <laughs> several months, last weeks. Who's really in charge? Not you. Not you. I don't care who you are. God is in charge. Yeah, ultimately, who controls? Yeah, Roger said it's really between God and Satan, hands down. Who, who, is, who is the prince of this earth? Who, who is in control of the nation, so to speak, in one sense, Satan. The, notice what the text says. When the Lord says that He's going to do this, He says in verse 4, the Egyptians will know. How do they know? They're going to die. And, and scholars love to quibble, and so the issue is, what in the world are we talking about here? It could be the Egyptians as a nation will know when Pharaoh and their elite army is wiped out. It could be that they know at that moment before they die, or it could be that, you know, life doesn't just end here. <laughs> There's life beyond the grave, and they're going to know for all eternity that, yes, He is God. Either way, uh, it's going to be revealed. Uh, now, I want you to see something that's, that's key here. <clears throat> this is reconstruction, but uh, a, a chariot. The chariots of the Egyptians, and we're going to get to this again because, again, seven times it's mentioned in the text. They're very mobile. Uh, they're met for, for speed. And usually you only have two men. The text is a little unclear here because it says, if you notice in verse 6, he prepared his chariots, took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and officers on all of them. So it would appear that you have two men both with weapons, even the driver of the chariot. You say, well, Hophenitz, that's nice. Yeah, I'm sure it's a, it's a powerful army. No, I don't... You, you have to realize how powerful the Egyptian army was during the 18th dynasty. If, whether you take an early dating, which I hold to, which is 1400, that's Amenhotep II, or you take a, 14, or a 1200 dating, which is Ramses, either one are very, very powerful pharaohs in Egypt's history. They will expand, both of them expand Egypt all the way down to the third cataract, uh, down to the first cataract, down to Nubia, which is down in Ethiopia. They will take out all of those, those 
territories. They'll move all the way to modern Turkey and take out the Hittite Empire. The Sea Peoples coming out of, of uh, Crete, out of, um, no, it's debated, but out of Greece and all that region will invade. These Sea, sea Peoples will come down and they will take out various people groups. Uh, the Philistines are offspring of those. They'll, they'll move the Canaanites out of that whole coastal area. The Sea Peoples, there was only one group they could never force into subjection or, or to move them, and that was the Egyptians. They had one very powerful army. And I mentioned this there in your notes. Uh, several scholars have commented on this. One scholar states they were a thoroughly militarized society. And they had certainly come to believe that an aggressive foreign policy was the best defense against any future humiliation at the hands of outsiders. That is crystal clear. They were not afraid to invade. They were not afraid to flex their muscles. And so when it says here in the text that Pharaoh grabs his elite division, this is the Navy SEALs coming to the, the, the forefront, you better believe the Israelites were terrified. They know full well what could happen. Um, Questions on any of this? Because this is, uh, we sometimes miss this thing. Oh, you know, you got this 600 soldiers. No, no, no. This is an elite squad. This is the best of the best. And Pharaoh himself, it's interesting. Another reason I think it's Amenhotep II, not only does it fit biblically, chronologically, but interestingly, Egypt will present two Amenhotep IIs in their literature and in their, higher, in their depictions of mosaics and so forth. The first one, Amenhotep II, is a warrior. He's powerful. He's mighty. The second one is a mama's boy. He loves the arts. He never leaves the house, blah, blah, blah. They're two different men. They're not the same. Why would they do that? What happens to the first one? You know, he's fish food, right? He dies in the sea. And Egypt has to immediately, you, you can't have the manifestation of your God dying. So immediately they set up a second pharaoh. Uh, they still call him by the same name because most Egyptians have never seen the pharaoh. So they, they, they call him by the same name. They present him as the same person, but he's not the same person. And his characteristics and his interests are vastly different than the first, which is interesting. But Amenhotep II the second was known for being very bloodthirsty and very powerful and a military genius. So this is intriguing. This is the backdrop. You know, God didn't pull a, you know, a pansy country, <laughs> a military might to show His glory. He takes the strongest army possible. He takes, again, the Navy SEALs or He takes the elite of the elite and brings them in and says, no, let me show you my glory now with them. And, and that's this, this scene that we're, we're faced with here in the text. Questions or comments on that? That's, uh, in fact, um, we'll take groups to Hatzor, which is in northern Israel. And the Israelites had a, a military fortress all the way up in Hatzor, which is way past Galilee, near the Lebanon border. All right, they were all over the place, their power, their military strength. Well, the text goes, let's look back at this then. As the people see the crowd coming, verse 11, they say to Moses, it's interesting, they cry out to the Lord via Moses, don't they? 
And they say to Moses, was it because there were no graves? It's a double negative in the Hebrew. It's used for emphasis. Uh, They are coming after them. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, later states uh, when he retells the story that the Israelites wanted to stone Moses. They were about to stone him. Uh, Again, the text doesn't tell us that, but uh, it's interesting that Josephus brings it up. And as you look at this, they rebuke Moses, and notice what they rebuke Moses over. Don't miss this. In so doing, in this, they fail to, to account for the Lord's powerful hand, don't they, in the ten plagues? I mean, have you missed this God who's brought uh, fleas and ticks and all that stuff? I mean, have you, you missed all this? You were there. Did you not see what was happening? Secondly, they failed to remember their plight in the land of Egypt. Isn't that amazing? We, it would have been better for us, they state in verse 12, to be back in Egypt as slaves. Really? If I recall, you were told to kill your own sons. And you think it's better there? You, you get this, don't you? And the third, is, and, and the bottom line, they failed to trust the Lord. Right? We've, we've looked at several texts already. You can go back to all the way back to Exodus 4 and you know, with the whole account with Moses, etc. And what Moses relates to the Israelites is God told you you're going to have the land He promised to your fathers. And yet, time and time again, they miss it. Now, it ends, this whole scene ends on a glorious note, but it doesn't take long for the, <laughs> the Israelites to complain again, does it? And, and we'll get to those scenes starting in January and the impact of that. On the top of the second page, I made this note, Moses comforting words to his people, do not be afraid, as he states in verse 13, are the same words even Israel's great ancestors have needed to hear. Uh, Go back, you'll see it with Abraham, you'll see it with Isaac, Jacob, and even Hagar. God's saying, don't be afraid. And... uh, As we stand today, don't be afraid. God's on the throne, right? My wife and I were talking last night. I said, do you realize the implications of da-da-da-da-da? And I was like, wait a minute. God's on the throne. You know, we rest there and know He's ultimately in charge. Questions on this section, verses 1 through 14 of 14? That was a bit of a blitzkrieg. We got to get to the, the parting, right? Well, look at verse 15 then. All right, here we go. Verse 15, it says the angel, uh, excuse me, verse 15, then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? What a bum rap. We'll get to this in a minute. God doesn't rebuke the Israelites. He rebukes Moses. And you're going, wait a minute. Tell the Israelites to go forward. But as for you, lift up your rod and extend your hand towards the sea and divide it so that your Israelites may go into the midst of the sea on dry ground. That's going to be repeated several times in the text. But I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will pursue them, that I may be honored because of Pharaoh and because of his army and because of his chariots, because of his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. It's repeated again. When I have gained my honor because of Pharaoh, because of his chariots, and because of his horsemen. Again, seven times that phrase occurs, because of his great army. The angel of God. This is interesting. Most scholars believe it's a pre-incarnate Christ who was going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them in the pillar of cloud, which is also the pillar of fire, moved 
And some argue it's the Holy Spirit, so the role of the Trinity is in here. It could be, I don't want to make too much of this, but it's interesting, isn't it? Moved from before them and stood behind them. It came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of the Israelites. So God creates this buffer zone. Uh, in the dark cloud and it lit up the night so that one camp did not come near the other the whole night, which allowed the next thing to happen. And Moses stretched out his hand towards the sea. The Lord caused the sea to go again apart by a strong east wind all that night, and he made the sea into the dry land and the waters were divided. So the Israelites went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. That's amazing. It's not even wet. The waters forming a wall for them on the right and on the left. The Egyptians then see what's happening. They chase after them. They went into the midst of the sea, all the horses of Pharaoh, the chariots, his horsemen. In the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the host of Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw the Egyptians into a panic. He jammed the wheels of their chariots. Some have that the wheels fell off. The Hebrew probably isn't saying that. It's more likely they're um, clogged with the mud. Uh, so that they had difficult driving. And the Egyptians said, let's flee. It's interesting. Watch what they state. For the Lord fights for the Israelites. <laughs> they finally know. Oh, that's right. And the Lord said to Moses, extend your hand towards the sea so the waters may flow back on the Egyptians, on their chariots, on their horsemen. And Moses extended his hand, and you know the story. Now the Egyptians were fleeing for, before it, but the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters turned, covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh was pursuing those lights into the sea. Not so much as one of them survived. And then watch this gruesome scene. But the Israelites walked on dry ground in the middle of the sea. The waves were like a wall. And here it is. So the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptian dead on the shore of the sea. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord had exercised over the Egyptians, they feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. Well, let's look at this and this next section of 14 I've called Delivered by God. Oops, uh, let's see. Why do you think the Lord rebukes Moses and not the people? Help me out. I've done enough talking. Help me out. Why does he go after Moses? <clears throat> yeah, except Moses did tell the people <clears throat> God is going to intervene, right? I mean... <clears throat> Okay. <clears throat> All right, good. Any, I, I like it. I think that works. Anything else? <clears throat> yep. That, that's great. In, in many ways, that was more towards the Pharaoh, though, that Moses would appear like God. Yep. <clears throat> what else? They were. Some argue that Moses is the representative of the people. The problem I have with that is later on, uh, God tells Moses, you know what, I'm just going to wipe them all out. We're going to start all over with you. So <clears throat> it would appear, reading between the lines, that I think you're right. I think Moses, he might have given lip service to the Israelites, 
but I'm not sure he fully believed all that he's supposed to do and what God is really going to handle. God certainly goes after him and says, you, 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 you can't do this. This is what needs to happen. So it's difficult to know exactly what happens there in the text, but I, I think you're on the, the right wavelength. The text doesn't tell us. I know it doesn't, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's part of it. You're not leading them. You're, you need to go forward. We need to get up to the sea. We, we just don't know. The text, again, it's, it's, it's silent. What we do see in the text in verses 16 through 18 <clears throat> is God parting the waters. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's interesting. Uh, a lot of scholars, and you only need to go to Barnes & Noble or if they're still around, I don't know, uh, Books of Million, and look in the religious section and find a book on the Old Testament, and I can guarantee you uh, most of those texts are going to try to poo-poo this whole passage, and they're going to try to explain away the parting of the sea. Well, it was up in the marshlands is usually the line. It was very shallow water. There was a land bridge, and it was easy for them to cross. And <clears throat> Riken tells the story, and it's great, uh, that this was delivered uh, he, this man was speaking in a church saying, you know, this is what happened. It was a marshland. It was shallow. And an elderly man in the back goes, praise the Lord. He used all that, that little bit of water to drown the entire Egyptian army. <laughs> so there you are. There is no doubt that it is miraculous. In fact, in your notes, Walt Kaiser in his commentary on Exodus there in your notes says, there is no way to water down, no pun intended, the text to fit natural explanations. The report, report clearly shows a miraculous work of God making a path through the sea, a path that had to be as wide as half a mile in order for many people and their animals to cross between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. Where does he get that? The, the, there's some Hebrew that talks about timetable in the text. So in other words, we have a small window to move all these people through and, and to have dry ground with walls of water and then coming down, there's only one way to explain it, right? That's, that's the Lord. Uh, and I mentioned this in your notes, Isaiah 51.10. I even put it in the notes. Did you not dry up the sea, the waters of the great deep? Did you not make a path through the depths of the sea so those delivered from bondage could cross over? It's the rallying point. Remember we said earlier on, it becomes the centrality of biblical theology for the Hebrew for the Israelites. It's God who acted. There's no other explanation. Next week, we're going to look at one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. We're going to look at the Song of Moses. Get ready. It's loaded. Uh, loaded with theology, but it's giving all praise to God. There's no other way you can explain this. And that's what Kaiser is saying in his commentary. There's no way. To, how else do you do this? The assurance is given to Israel cannot be missed here in the text either. God has given His promise. I'm leading you through. I told you. I'm giving you the, the land I promised to your fathers. Secondly, we have the angel of the Lord, who, as I told you, most scholars believe is a pre-incarnate Christ because the angel of the Lord is often given the same qualities as God and is described as God, and the angel of the Lord never says, don't, don't call me that. The angel of the Lord is, welcomes that. So it's God in human form which is interesting. And then finally, the presence of the pillar. In other words, I am there with you to the Israelites. Don't fear. Can you imagine? 
This is crazy, right? Do, 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 as they watch what's happening. But God's in charge. I want you to turn to Psalm 77. Uh, Psalm 77, and, and there are several Psalms that look back to the Exodus, and this is one of them. <clears throat> Again, it's, it's a rallying point for the Israelites. It's to shore up their faith. And Psalm 77, and we'll start in verse 13, gives us an idea of what really transpired during the night when the Israelites were brought through on dry ground. We'll start in verse 13. Oh God, your deeds are extraordinary. Yeah, pouring a Red Sea, wiping out an elite army of the Egyptians, that's amazing. What God can compare to our great God? Not Ra, not Osiris, not Horus, and all the other gods of Egypt. You are the God who does amazing things. You have revealed your strength among the nations. You deliver your people by your strength, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. Then watch, the waters saw you, O God, the waters saw you, and I love this, and trembled. What did Jesus say <clears throat> when the religious rulers said, hey, have your disciples stop singing praises to you. The crowds are giving acclamation of Hosanna to you. He says, if they don't, what will happen? Even the rocks will do it. Even they'll speak. All of creation screams God's glory, doesn't it? Psalm 19, Romans chapter 1, it's, it's at His beck and call, which is ironic that His creation, which entails humans, aren't always at His, at his disposal and a willingness to give Him glory. They will someday. And you know, it's the sad part with Pharaoh, isn't it? He still gives glory to God, whether he likes it or not. It's just, he didn't get the joy or the privilege or the blessings of being a positive influence or, or proactive in, in, in pursuing God's glory. But God is still glorified, whether Pharaoh wanted it or not. The waters saw you and trembled, yet the depths of the sea shook with fear. The clouds poured down like rain. The skies thundered, yet your arrows flashed about. So there's lightning, there's thunder, there's earthquakes. All of this is transpiring at this time frame. Your thunderous voice was heard in the wind. The lightning bolts lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. You walked through the sea, angel of the Lord, going before the pillar you walk through the sea, you pass through the surging waters, you left no footprints. <laughs> Why? It's not muddy, it's dry, sandy. You led your people like a flock of sheep by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And I love that because who's the good shepherd in John chapter 10? The same one who walks through the waters, right? And, and brings us salvation through himself, right? <clears throat> same thing. Same idea. I mentioned there in your notes, the price of Pharaoh's hardened heart was extremely costly. It's there in your notes. It cost him his firstborn son, his workforce, his elite army, and sadly, his own life. Right? The battle's over when we get to verse 29 without firing a shot. The world's best armed forces lay as corpses on the sandy shore. It's amazing. I thought it'd be interesting. How, let's just make a list. How do the Israelites respond based on what God has just done and what they've experienced? 
And I'm sure, as they say in Scotland, they're gobsmacked. They're probably sitting there going, hum, and hum, what just happened? You know, so they look around. But how do they respond? The latter part of 14. What do we see? There's a space for you to write them in. How do they respond? Help me out. Jamie, what's one thing they say? Put you on the spot. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure there are a few who are still, they don't know what to say. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, fear. Notice what the text says. What do they fear? Who do they fear? The Lord. So there's fear of the Lord, which is an, uh, an awe, awe or reverence to God. All right, so they fear Him. It's interesting. Who do they fear in verse 10 of chapter 14? When Pharaoh got close to the Israel's lights looked up and they were terrified. <laughs> Earlier they feared Pharaoh and his army, and now they fear God. Finally, we got it right. What else do you see? They believed Moses. What did they want to do earlier in chapter 14? They hated him, and Josephus tells us they wanted to stone him. <clears throat> they blamed Moses, and now they're praising him. Right? Don't miss this. A fickled lot, right? <laughs> and it won't be long. They'll be back to blaming Moses again. We'll get there later, right? Melons and leeks. Where is it? Right? <clears throat> this manna stuff. Yuck. All right, what else? <clears throat> Yeah, they sang a song. We're going to get to that. They're not singing a song earlier in chapter 14. They feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord. Doesn't the text tell us that? When they saw the great power the Lord exercised, they feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. That is not the case earlier in chapter 14. There is a lack of trust in the promise God has given. Right? Mm-hmm. And I, I find that to be so incredible. So the response ultimately is correct. But I look at these, their, their fear was, to me, really was based on he was going to be, they were going to be killed by the Egyptians. It wasn't that, as stated there, that um, Moses spoke to who was serving. It wasn't being, that you're going to die. I don't think it was intended of Pharaoh to kill them necessarily. He wanted his servants back. Yeah. <clears throat> You're right. It's the first song that we see here. And by the way, men later, we are told to sing praises to the Lord and exalt his name. And I, the, the indictment against humanity is that time and time again, we fail to see God and, and, and bend our knee, right? And look at the book of Revelation. It's the saddest, it's the greatest and most exciting, but it's also the, the saddest story about humanity, Right? Even with God on the throne in earth for a thousand years, the, at the end of the thousand years, Satan's released and we still rebel, right? And when all those plagues come, they're still, not, they're still holding their fist up at God. Well, <clears throat> let, me give you, we're running, let me give you three things to run with today. First of all, as believers, we need to rejoice in our miraculous salvation. Romans 8, you can read it later and look at that. Jesus is our new Moses. Our salvation was attained by an all-powerful, loving, and sovereign God who rescued us from the enemy, right? right think about it. You were 
just as trapped by the sea. Followers of and energized by Satan, according to Ephesians 2. Here's, a, here's another thing to run with. Even when circumstances fail to make sense, God is always in control. And I love this. Garrett, in his commentary, watch what he says here. The path of obedience can itself seem like a kind of folly, but it's the folly of the cross in which the weakness and stupidity of God is stronger and wiser <clears throat> than earthly power or common sense. Isn't that great? Uh, is, again, God's perspective, the Israelites were right where He wanted them. There was no mistakes. He knows. And then finally, one more to run with. Those who resist and reject God will ultimately abandon wisdom and morality. Sin will create cataracts over wisdom and insight every day. Don't, don't miss it. Those of you involved in, in, in counseling, those involved in, in ministry at all, you see it on a daily basis, right? Sin... They chuck their brain at the door, it seems. Um, so those who, who resist and reject God, like the Pharaoh of Egypt, will ultimately abandon wisdom and morality. We have a great God. He's parted Red Seas. <laughs> He's brought salvation to the Israelites. He's brought salvation to us. He is on the throne. And no future president or prime minister or king can thwart the will of God. And that is a great message for a Tuesday morning election day, is it not? Father, we thank you that you are on the throne, and we thank you that you, the God of the universe, who commanded the sea to obey and the wind and the sky and all that needed to take place, that was nothing. That was just a stroll in the park for you, O God Almighty. And we are so thankful that the salvation that uh, was extended to the Israelites, you also extended salvation to us because your son, Jesus Christ, came and he, he brought us through the waters and has brought salvation to us, those who've called upon his name, and we are so grateful. Father, indeed, life has its curveballs and circumstances do not always make sense, but this text is a, a reminder as well that you are on the throne and you are in control and nothing is going to thwart your plan. And we are so grateful. Bless these men today. Thank you for them. And again, we do pray for the election today. In Jesus' name, amen.